Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 300 speaker files, links for you to subscribe to the podcast, and a place where you can donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Michael. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, I'm Michael. I'm a recovering compulsive overeater and bulimic. I thank God for my abstinence and my sobriety. Every morning I get up and I get on my knees and I thank God for this incredible life that I've got today. And uh, you know, it's by pure coincidence that I got asked to speak today on, on the day that I was taking my, my five-year uh, candle here. And I want to thank Lisa, a, a real great 12-step lady and a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, love in my heart for you as well. There's a lot of people in this room here that uh, you know are looking. Um, you know, I've got a lot of a lot of love for, and um, I've spoken at this meeting three times before, and I've always broken down in tears at the podium because it was, uh, for some reason, whenever Lucy's here and I speak at this meeting and I look at her, um, I break down in tears, and it's not because of Lucy. It's just I remember how much pain I was in before I came, when I came into this room, this is where it all started for me, my recovery, not only in Overeaters Anonymous, but in Alcoholics Anonymous as well, and I, I did the literature here for about nine months with, with Lucy, and I was just in, you know, just in such a dark place when I came in here in February 2008, and my life has changed beyond my wildest dreams, unbelievable what's happened to me in five years, and I wasn't kidding there, when I, I never have thought five years on that I would be standing up here and taking a taking a candle from, from these great people and from my from Martha, my future wife and uh, you know, like I said, I didn't come in here to find a wife, but you know, God has other plans for us. And my life today really is incredible and I'm gonna talk a little bit about where where I came from. There's a lot of newcomers in here and the the particular meetings I go to in, in AA, we don't do drunkologues, we don't talk about the past. Um, but I think it's important that I talk about my past here for those of you that have come in for the first time into OA because you may be suffering, you may be uh, at a point where you just don't know what to do around the food and around the thinking and uh, there's certainly a solution here. So, you know, I've had a, an eating disorder uh, just about my entire life. Um, I believe I was born with this problem because I don't believe it's uh, I don't believe it's an eating problem. I believe it's a thinking problem, and I suffer from a disease, a mind power disease that centres in my thinking, and it's just the way I am. And um, I'm not only dealing with my alcoholism. I call it alcoholism, even though I have an eating disorder. But I'm dealing with generations of alcoholism in my family. You know, I'm dealing with my father who died at 51 and my grandfather. And I think if we go way back, we'll, we'll probably find uh, there's quite a few people with this addictive, uh, you know, addictive disease. So, you know, my earliest recollection um, as a young boy growing up, I'm a, I come from a Scottish family, uh, but I grew up in England, in the north of England. And uh, I grew up in a very chaotic, unhappy uh, nerve-wracking, door-slamming, shouting and screaming uh, household. It just was not a happy place to be. And uh, my father was a, a, an alcoholic, a terrible alcoholic, very abusive, very um, physically and, and verbally abusive. And he was a very sick man. And uh, he would uh, go out on a Friday night to the pub. I remember, the rec- remember this vividly. And I knew what was going to happen. 
I knew that when he came back there was going to be this terrible scene and my mother, you know, um, you know, in tears and doors slamming and my sister's up in the middle of the night and, you know, even worse, you know, watching my mother being dragged along the floor by her hair. You know, this is what I, I you know, I saw her at six years of age. This is, this is what this young boy saw. Uh, and uh, what, I, what I used to do is I would hide under my covers. I had this vivid imagination as a boy I still do actually and um, I would uh, I would pretend I was off in some other other galaxy or some other incredible place and I'd sneak downstairs you know around about midnight and I would go into the refrigerator and I'd get a big glass of milk and then it was always you know cookies and sweets and chocolate in our house and I would take some Cadbury's chocolate great British chocolate Cadbury's and I would do exactly <laughs> and, uh, she's, uh, she knows it because she's Canadian they eat Cadbury's as well and uh, I, would, I would run upstairs and I'd hide under the covers and I would eat this chocolate and cookies and drink this milk and it just made me feel better for this impending doom and it just made me feel better and I found a way of just like calming down and just calming this mind down and calming this fear like this fear this like knot in your stomach that just ch- turns and turns and turns and I've had that feeling just about all my life but I found food to deal with it so I dealt I used food you know, throughout my childhood to get through all these, you know, ter- terrible episodes. And then my father died of alcoholism. And then my brother took over the mantelpiece of being the family uh, drunk. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And then I found alcohol as well as food. So you can just imagine the picture that was, that was unfolding in my life. And um, the other thing um, about my childhood was um, my mother was a school teacher a retired school teacher now and, and uh, there was a huge importance put on, on school because we were Catholics growing up in Britain and that wasn't really a great thing to be Catholic growing up in Britain to be honest especially Irish Scottish Catholic with an Irish name and so we were always on the kind of back foot you know we were always trying to prove ourselves and um, you know, it was drilled into me that you've got to get your exam, you know, pass your exams and get to university and, you know, you'll be able to get a decent job maybe as a school teacher and, you know, and, you know, shoulder on in life and put up with the, with the, the you know, the struggles that life has. That was kind of drilled into me instead of, you know, opening my mind up to having a life that's beyond my wildest dreams, happy, joyous and free that this program's taught me to believe in. And uh, so I remember going to school and, and uh, French was the subject I hated the most not because I hated the French, I just hated French, the French language, you know, and I couldn't do it, you know, I was just, it just, I didn't understand why I needed to learn to speak French, I lived in England, everybody spoke English, why did I need to speak French? I was never going to go to France, you know, the alcoholic mind, already, twisting and turning already, you know, defiant, questioning, the ego taking over, and uh, so I used to fail these French tests, terribly like you know it was so embarrassing I'd get one out of 30 and the whole class would laugh at me and the teacher would come up and you know the nun would come up and slap me across the back of the head and you know I'd run home and and, you know I'd tell my mother and and my mother don't worry about it and I would get fed to make me feel better and then I would get rewards to pass to to, to do my my revision and my my homework with food and this was a constant kind of like you'll get rewarded you know, if you do well with food, and if you don't do well, we'll give you food to medicate you anyway. So it was just one big thing about food all the time. So here it was, you know, just went on and on and on. And this, as I started overeating, I got fatter and fatter. And, uh, you know, as a, as a schoolboy in England growing up, you know, being fat in the school I was in was not a good place. 
and then so I started running and I started playing soccer and I was really good at it and I was really good at sports and I lost all the weight and then I started over exercising and throwing up and my, my school teacher would say, it's a good workout if you throw up at the end of it. No pain, no gain. You know? And, that was, and that, that was the way it was. So I'd go out and I'd run myself into the ground and throw up and think that was a fantastic workout. And then I started losing the weight. And I did not know that was bulimia until I came into Old Reaches Anonymous. And so this went on. And I remember when I was 17, I would go to McDonald's because we got McDonald's late in the UK. It came kind of late in the, in the 80s and... Uh, you know, I'd go to McDonald's and I would, I would have about four or five Big Macs and like six or seven portions of French fries. And then, you know, I'd be stuffed. And then I'd go running. And then I'd throw up. And I, and I, I thought, what a great workout. You know? <laughs> and uh, I would throw up down the front of my, my, my shirt. You know, there'd be all this vomit covered down the front of my running shirt. And what I used to do is I used to change my shirt hide it in the, in the, uh, in the, the garage and go in and my mother would say wow you're fit you never sweat or anything you know and I'd be like there'd be all these vomit stained running shirts hidden in the, in the garage and I thought that was normal I thought that was normal and then my sister I could hear her throwing up and purging in the, in the bathroom and, and we'd sit me and my sister and we'd plan diets I mean this was a 17 year old diet not normal I should have been out having a good time but I was planning diets with her, and I remember the Beverly Hills diet and the pineapple, the golden pineapple diet. And we got all these books sent over from America, and we'd be planning diets with my sister. And, and I'd say to her, you know, I can smell vomit in the bathroom, and she went, yeah, it's a great way of, of keeping thin, you know. And I'd talk to my sister about this, but I couldn't do it, you know. I couldn't shove my thing, fingers down my throat. I would exercise to the point where I would throw up, and this is. You know, this is uh, this was my life. You know, this was this was what my life came to. And then, you know, when I wanted periods of normality, I went and got drunk. You know, because I used alcohol to avoid the food, and I'd go out. And I, I didn't just drink normally. I hated the taste of alcohol. I'd have to knock them down quickly, and then it would be on because the mind was getting treated. And I loved the effect that alcohol produced on me. It had a different effect to food. It made me feel like Superman. It made me feel confident. And I could talk to anybody, especially women. You know, and I was like, you know, so full, you know, full of jokes and funny and charming. You know, and I was like, you know, off I went. And then I started to get onto my drinking career. And then I would get into terrible trouble with the drinking. This carried on and on and on and on. And, uh, you know, life just got worse and worse and worse. And then um, moving forward a little bit in my life, I remember uh, coming to America uh, 20 years ago and uh, I was playing college soccer at the time and I got invited to come over and play soccer and coach soccer in New England and Massachusetts and Maine and, and Rhode Island and I came and I, I landed in New York City and uh, at the time the World Trade Center was still there and I remember getting on the Peter Pan bus for those of you from the east coast if you know what the Peter Pan bus was and like, the bus came in from JFK and it was coming up to Manhattan and I saw this incredible skyline Manhattan skyline and I got off the bus and uh, I walked up uh, I think it was uh, up towards Times Square and then I walked up Fifth Avenue and I looked around and I thought I've found the promised land this is incredible I've got to come to America I want to live in America and I spent a really happy summer coaching and playing soccer and the bulimia and the alcohol just disappeared 
and I had a really happy three months and I was in great shape and I met all these great people and I was staying with American families all across New England and I just, it just left me and I, and I came back to England and the, the eating started again and the drinking and I couldn't figure it out and it was because I was so happy and I was doing something that I loved to do and I had purpose in my life and I had a goal and I didn't need the food and I didn't need the alcohol and I didn't need to treat this mind because it was kind of calm for a while and the other thing about that time was uh, I'm a Catholic and uh, I started going to Mass again and I know I, I, we're a 12 step meeting I'm not going to get too much into the religion side but I started praying and I hadn't done it for a long time and I remember going into Patrick's Cathedral on 5th Avenue in New York City and getting on my knees and going, God, can you just help me get a green card? Because I really want to come and live in America. I really want to come and live in America. I really like America and I really want to come here. And I remember praying about it. And, uh, you know, I went back to the UK and uh, that kind of dream kind of like um, faded out because I got back into my life and it was very hard to come here and, and the eating and the drinking continued. And then by, uh, by real... Um, great opportunity I, I had the, the chance to come back to America about 12 years ago and got a green card and, uh, but I was really in the height of my disease and I came to California and it's probably the worst place to come to if you've got an eating disorder <laughs> I just couldn't believe how many places there were to eat everywhere here in Southern California and I landed here in Southern California and I didn't really know anybody and um, you know, my disease really kicked in big time. And just to tell you a little bit about what it was like leading up to coming to program, my typical Friday night I was living in Pasadena at the time. Was I would uh, I didn't have any friends. I found Los Angeles a really unfriendly, cold place and godless. You know, real godless. <laughs> and I thought I got to I got to get back to Boston. That was a nice city, you know, and. Uh, or New York, I just couldn't, I hated California and, uh, you know, I just, I found the people so rude and, and superficial and, uh, you know, the body beautiful and here with me, this big fat guy, you know, and uh, wasn't living the dream at all, was not living the American dream. So on a Friday night, um, you know, I'd go to a diner and I would eat all my comfort food and uh, I would st I'd eat so much, I'd stuff myself and I'd get in my car and I remember opening the car door and I'd throw up down the side of the car and some of the vomit would get in my in the inside of my, my car door and I'm telling you how bad it got I'm very ashamed of this behaviour I'm not trying to impress anybody by that how could you and uh, you know and, and then I, I would go home and I would just uh, I'd vow that I wouldn't do it again you know I'd vow I wouldn't do it again I'd throw all the crap food in the bin and then I'd be picking food out of the bin and eating it, cold pizza out the bottom of the bin. And I even went outside to the, the bins in the, the apartment building and went through and found old black bins that I'd thrown food in and was eating them at one o'clock in the morning. And I thought, this is insane. I can't stop. I can't stop. And then I'd go out into the, the night and I'd go to a drive through and go and eat, you know, in and out burger and throw up again. And I was so ashamed I couldn't tell anybody about it. I couldn't tell my family. You know, I couldn't, I, I mean, as a man, as well, you know, as a bulimic man, I mean, I just, I, I had nobody to talk to, but the real pain, that wasn't the pain. Mm -hmm. The real pain was what was going on inside my mind. Absolute loneliness. I couldn't, I just couldn't connect with anybody. It was just a dark place. Terrible. You know, and I just, 
I went home for a few months and I, it was as bad at home because I thought it was America and then I went home and it was just as bad there and then I came back British Airways were doing a great deal on me I was back and forward all the time and I, I just couldn't because I was taking me with me the disease was coming with me and uh, it didn't matter who I was around it, it just was I was on my own all the time I could be sitting with my family at home and I was just in t on my own all the time in my head because my outer existence is what's going on in the secret place here in my mind and uh, the worst it came to was um, I went to Boston on business I was working for a, a large bank and um I knew some guys there and I went out in Boston and I started drinking heavily. It was uh, Thanksgiving 2007 and I, I drank because I didn't want to eat and uh, I drank, started drinking on the Thursday and I don't remember anything until the Monday morning and I woke up on a hotel room floor in Boston and uh, I was covered in blood and uh, my shirt was all torn and I couldn't remember anything about apart from some altercation with some taxi driver and some Irish guy in Saudi I was in South Boston and uh, there was a, and this is just where it, this is just where it just turned for me I looked at the, on, down on the floor and it was like this chicken kebab it was just spread all over the, the carpet floor and I looked at it and then there was a pile of vomit on the other side of the bed and that is where I'd got to and that is where this disease took me now I'm in AA and I tell people this story and people say well it's only through pull yourself together it's not like you got in a car and knocked somebody down well when you suffer from an eating disorder acutely as I suffered from you know the pain of where food addiction takes you and unless you suffer from that addiction you don't know and so only one bulimic can help another only one compulsive overeater can help another as only one alcoholic can help another in that program and you are all nodding at me and there's some ladies here nodding at me you know the pain that I was going through because you've been through it as well and so uh, my boss was calling me on my Blackberry and I'm looking at the vomit I'm looking at the chicken kebab and I'm looking <laughs> at the blood and a chipped tooth and I couldn't find my money and she was like where, where are you you're supposed to be here this morning in, in the office in Pasadena and I'm in, a, I'm in the Hampton Inn in South Boston <laughs> she said are you, where are you and I said I, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not very well and she went yeah you're not very well you need to be in tomorrow morning to see me and uh, I thought I'm going to lose my job uh, I had no money I was really scrambling for money at the time and I got on a plane I got this taxi to the Logan Airport in Boston and uh, I, I, I got on the plane and I had blood down the shirt vomit on the jeans and I couldn't put the belt around me because I was 330 pounds and there's some pictures going around the room that shows what I used to look like I don't know where they are and uh, um, I remember sitting in the seat and not being able to put the belt around me and this is somebody who played college soccer that took pride in the way he looked and uh, ran every day and you know was an athlete and uh, I remember the, the guy next to me just looking at me going what the hell is this and me getting up, through, up out of the chair three or four times to throw up in the, in the toilet at the back of the plane and that was, that was the, the bottom 
and so the next morning I went to work and my boss at the time said you're a real problem you look terrible and you need to take a couple of weeks off and people have said you smell of alcohol when you come to work and you know uh, you need to get some help because I was married to an alcoholic you need to get some help and I kept my job what an angel that was sent from God right and um so I kind of gripped for the leading up to Christmas time and I, I kind of just like, you know, just stopped drinking. But the eating went even worse. It just got worse and worse over Christmas time. And I walked into, a, a, I just didn't know what to do. And um, I'd lost. I just, uh, I just didn't know what to do anymore and uh, I'd lost my way and uh, <clears throat> so I walked into a church uh, in Pasadena on New Year's Eve and uh, I got on my knees and I said I need you I need you I can't go on and uh, I just felt better and the next week my friend took me to an AA meeting and um, I just felt better and, uh, but everybody was eating <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he said, the man, the man, the, the, he said to me, uh, he said to me, I'm sure there's a 12-step program for food, and I typed in eating disorders into Google, and the, the result came back, Overeaters Anonymous, and I went to my first OA meeting in Glendora in uh, March to February, January 2008, and uh, I've got to tell you this story. You know, my first meeting, I've told people this before, my first OA meeting. Uh, imagine how terrified a newcomer is coming to an OA meeting and uh, I walked in and there was a guy lying in the middle of the floor in this old rickety OA clubhouse just one guy lying in the floor uh, I walked in it was a men's stag on a Sunday night and I walked in and he, and he sat up and he went do you believe in God and, and I went yeah and he said everything's going to be okay and laid back down and I sat in the chair and you can imagine how terrified a newcomer is you know you've tried everything else and you're sitting there and I, and I, I thought should I stay should I go should I, what should I do should I stay and um, then a couple of guys walked in and a guy called uh, uh, I've forgotten his name now but he told me about he told me about after the end of the meeting he said you want to go to this meeting over on the west side there's an Irish guy that goes to it and a lot of young people really nice community Overeaters Anonymous meeting it's in a church on St. Vincente Boulevard it's called Light a Candle you want to go along to it Daryl was his name so Daryl if you're listening you changed my life I've met him once since then do you know Daryl? great guy and he really helped me a lot and I uh, came to this meeting and I sat at the back for about five weeks and I walked in and I thought this can't be Overeaters Anonymous they're all way too good looking <laughs> and uh, 
I just sat at the back and I remember talking to Francine and I went over and I met Mickey and, and that's where my life changed. It changed in this room and that's why I always break down when I come in this meeting because I just remember the change. And it talks about in the big book being born again, you know, transforming your life. And, you know, I'm going to talk about the solution now because I don't know how much time I've got left. Uh, got about ten minutes left. So, you know, what? the big change for me has been a real change on the inside, really changing my thinking. But it's been all about finding a loving, living God in my life today. I knew that I did not have an eating problem, that I knew that I had a, a much deeper problem within me. It was a spiritual problem. It was a soul sickness that I had. It was a disease of the mind and a disease of the spirit. And I had to find a power much greater than myself. And that's what this book is all about. And I carry this book everywhere I go. And I read it every single day. And I do what it tells me to do. And it's changed my life beyond my wildest dreams. And when I say changed my life beyond my wildest dreams, I used to think that was scoring the winning goal for Manchester United. <laughs> or, uh, or walking down a, a red carpet and people taking photographs of me and autographs. And that's not a, a life beyond my wildest dreams. A life beyond my wildest dreams is having a peace inside me, so deep with inside me, and so content with who I am. And there are days where I have that. And there are some days where I don't, but most of the days I do have that. And it's, and it's knowing that I'm being looked after and that I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing right here and now. And right here and now, even though I'm kind of like emotional, I'm really very peaceful. I'm looking at you right now and I'm feeling really peaceful because I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And that is God's will for me. When Lisa Ann called me that morning and said, will you speak on, on, in April? And I thought, that's the day I'm taking my, cake, my, my, my candle and because uh, God that's where he wants me to be right here and now saying something to somebody in here that's going to you know when they walk out the door going well if it can help work for him it can work for me and I'm going to do what he does and it's going to work for me and uh, that is what this program is all about I always knew there was a God but I just didn't know how to get to him and I found how to get to him through the 12 steps these 12 ancient spiritual principles and I can't go through all 12 steps in the next 8 minutes, but I can tell you that I live in steps 10, 11, and 12. And step 10 in the big book tells me that I have to watch out for four demons that come into my life. One is selfishness. One is resentment. One is dishonesty. What's the fourth one, Roy? Fear. How could I forget that one? Fear, driven by a hundred forms of fear. You know, that little buy under the sheets with the, the milk and the cookies. That was fear. And I was treating the fear with the food. Mm -hmm. But it specifically tells me in the big book, if I turn into the big book here, and it tells me on page 84, we have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. But this is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. We need to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment and fear. And when these crop up, it tells me what to do. And I do the 10 step four or five times a day. I ask God immediately to remove that fear. God, can you help me now? Can you remove that fear? Can you be with me? Can you help me? And then it tells me that I need to share that with somebody immediately. And I call my sponsor or I call other people that I, that I, that I, that I respect and trust in, in a way in AA. 
And then it tells me this is the key. I resoundly turn my thoughts to somebody else. And when I do that, the fear disappears. And I'm, I'm making amends immediately. I'm making amends immediately. I'm always making amends to Martha. Daily. <laughs> Daily. Constantly. And, make, and, making, and making amends. I mean, you laugh, but I am. You know, constantly. Because I'm trying to build the new character. I'm trying to build a man that God would be proud of. Not somebody throwing up down the side of the car. And abject loneliness and fear. It's not the way God wants me to live. It's not the way He wants you to live. That's not His plan for us. So step ten takes me out that. And I'll explain how you know quickly talk about how I apply that. I'm in sales, and um, you know I took over this job in in September, and I found all this fraud going on in my territory, and I had to get rid of all these people, and my number just plummeted. I was down at 49% to plan for those of you who work in business. And I was in a lot of fear at Christmas time. I didn't really talk to Martha about it. You know, we went away for a break and I was in a lot of fear. I talked to Vic about it. And, you know, I love the book, A New Pair of Glasses by Chuck C. I read extracts of it every week. And Chuck C talks about, you know, just go out and help somebody when you're in your daily business. Just go and be of service. Don't think about the results. Don't think about what you're going to get out of this. Just go and help people. And God's put me in a phenomenal job where I'm working with small Hispanic businessmen. Not small Hispanics. (laughs) Small businesses with tall Hispanic people. And then... They're, 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 they're all immigrants. They're immigrants like me, and I know the struggle it is to come to this country. And uh, I've got to know them really well, and I help plan the marketing and the tactics and everything. And, uh, you know, the sales have just gone up and up and up and up and up and up. And last Sunday, I went, I hit my plan in three months, which is just incredible. And my boss was calling me going, This is incredible. Are you 49% to 102% in three months? This is amazing. How did you do it? And uh, I don't really know apart from I prayed a lot. And uh, I pulled the car, car over on the freeway a few times and pretended to be changing a wheel. Instead, I was on one knee praying to God, asking Him to help me get through the day because the fear was taking over. And this is the things I do. And the results are amazing. God is our employer, Vic. And I call Vic when I'm in my car and, you know, it turns page 63, is it? You know, God is my employer. You know, He's constantly looking out for us all the time. Constantly. I think that's the whole essence of my program. You know, it's just that constant work every day. I've got to constantly go to Him and uh, smash that selfishness and that self obsession. And, um, you know, the constant thought of others. That is what treats my eating disorder. The constant thought of others. I've got quite a few sponsees now. And, you know, amazingly, it's so strange. The biggest success I've had have been with bulimic women. I sponsor quite a few women. And uh, one of my sponsees, new sponsees in the room, and she made me laugh yesterday. She went, I, I feel really bad. I'm always calling you. I just feel right. And I, and I was laughing when I put the phone down and went, you've no idea how much you help me when you call me because I have to call you back and we have to talk <laughs> about you. And then that means I'm not talking about me. The constant thought of others, you know. And that's what the essence of this is. So, you know, step 11 is really, I don't do the meditation, but I pray a lot. 
and I write out a step 11. I don't write out a step 10. A step the 10 is on, on the spot. I write out a step 11. And step 11 in here, and I know I'm coming up close to time, it says, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. That's a step 11. And then I put down, was I resentful? Was I selfish, dishonest? Do I owe an apology? And I write it out in shorthand. Every night I look at my day constructively. How do I get better tomorrow with God's will, God's power? How do I get better tomorrow? How do I keep building this new character? How do I keep getting to where God wants me to be? Every day I do that. And then step 12, you know, there's promises in all of the steps. And, uh, you know, the promise in uh, the, the 12th step is the, the, the greatest promise. And it's in the, the story, The Keys of the Kingdom, in the big book. And it talks about how we're not going to run from life's challenges or problems. That we're going to be excited about what life brings us. Because it's going to be another opportunity to apply these ancient spiritual principles in the day that we're in. And that's what I do. I don't really have that much fear at the moment. I'm like, whatever happens. You know, I know I've got this in my back pocket. And I know I've got all of you. And I've got my sponsor. But I've got one who has all power. So what's there to be, what's there to be afraid of? What's, where's the fear? And the fear is only manufactured in my own mind. Mm-hmm. I don't have to fear anything. And you know, the fear has really gone away. What a great way to live. Incredible. So, uh, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up now because uh, I just feel pretty peaceful looking at you all. And, you know, this room means a lot to me. And, uh, you know, I'm really happy that I'm here and I, I really hope some of you have uh, you know may have got something out of what I've said that will you know get you moving on your program into a much better life because you deserve it we all deserve it so I think I'll leave it at that <laughs> time out do we have question time so the question I think is, uh, um, you know, trusting in God to overcome fear was a, a single moment where it changed everything. No, there wasn't, Rod. To be honest with you, this is a uh, this is a, a, a daily process. Um, uh, every day is a new day, and I have to stay in that day I'm in. I can have one day where I'm just like very, very peaceful, and I'm like connected to God, and I'm helping my sponsors, and I'm going to meetings. And then if I get up the next day and I forget to get on my knees or I uh, get into self, or I get selfish, the fear comes back. The disease does not go away. Being in programs a little bit like being on an escalator that's going down. If I stop still, I go down with that escalator. But if I keep walking, and I keep taking those steps, I keep moving upwards. And as I move upwards, things get better and better. But if I keep still, it goes down. So, no, it, it, it comes, it's, it's been building slowly and slowly. Life has got better and better and better. All will be revealed. That's it. Thanks very much for letting me share, folks.